This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, something that comes naturally to some people is that they're just caring in general and they always put others first. Due to the events of the past couple of years, some of us will have had to give that much extra care to our loved ones. And if this is you, then just ask yourself, how much time do I give to me? Is that balance there? It can be so easy getting caught up in giving what others want or need from you that you neglect the equally important person in the equation, yourself. And you're very important because if you don't get that balance of spending time taking care of yourself as well as others, it can burn you out before you know it. And nobody wants that, do they? Now, a route that can help you find this balance is therapy. I've had my own times in the past where I felt as described, overwhelmed, I don't mind admitting. And I found that taking that bit of time out and opening up, even to a complete stranger, helped me back on track no end. It's an imperception that therapy is solely for those looking to rebuild themselves after experiencing trauma or loss. No, not at all. It can help you make positive changes in your life and learn how to recognise your own limits and develop your own boundaries as well. All valuable pointers that help you be the best version of you that there is and ensure that you look after yourself as much as you do others. So, from wherever you are in your life, to make it the best possible life for you and help with that journey of self-discovery, then why not try better help if therapy is an option you're considering? It's easy to get the ball rolling with, because all it takes is just filling out a short questionnaire, and you'll soon be matched with a licensed professional therapist best suited for your needs. If you feel that isn't working for you after a time, then you can simply switch therapists no problem, with no additional charge. Plus, because it's designed to be flexible and convenient, it's entirely online and works around you and your schedule. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot T-C-E. Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you each time around from a very cluttered spare room in North Wales, but always with a tale or tales of true crime that I've sought out for their uniqueness and unfamiliarity, and that I've searched around the UK and Ireland to do so. The I is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here as always. It's never ever too far from me if I'm here. And completing us are yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show go around. It means as ever the world that you've joined us today. It's so very kind of you to do so. And I do hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Right down to business then, and a bit of a sad tale this time around. Well, I suppose the majority of them are sad tales on the show in some way. But with this one this crime, you have to think to yourself, could this have been avoided? I'd say very definitely that it could have, because with it, it's backgrounded with a case of a system that at the time anyway, the late 1990s, that was following an inquiry shown to be seriously flawed, and to suffer greatly from that most commonplace of problems that I'm sure will be familiar to many of you where you work. It most certainly isn't mine. A lack of communication between departments that leads to a complete lack of action, or in the best possible scenario, 
action that comes too late. For perhaps if this had been rectified, it could have gotten someone the correct help they so clearly needed, and in time to save a life in the process. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, including descriptions of violence and injury detail. So please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode I've entitled A Boy Called Daniel. At 7.50am on the morning of Thursday the 22nd of January 1998, a 6 foot 7 inch tall, powerfully built young dreadlocked man burst into a block of flats in Manor Way in Tulls Hill in the London area of Brixton and kicked down the door of one of the flats there, belonging to 57 year old Carla Thompson who was in the flat with 21 year old Jennifer Blake who had spent the night there. Jennifer screamed as the intruder strode into the single bedroom of the flat, twisted his fists into the hair of the diminutive Carla who had been sleeping there, and dragging her onto the floor, set about her with his fists and feet, ripping the clothes from her body and banging her head on the doorframe. Terrified, Jennifer left the scene to get help. Within seconds, Carla was unconscious, and the man then started hauling her around the flat by her hair, smashing up tables and chairs, throwing a sofa through the window, and pausing every so often to either smash her head against a radiator until the wall was sprayed with blood, or to kick her again. A very specific kick, a sidestep, followed by a kick to Carla's face, chin, or neck. At one point, he even lit a piece of paper and tried to set fire to her hair, but when that failed, he grabbed a tow rope and hauled his victim's now naked body out into the car park in front of her flat. Then he went back into the building and kicked down another door belonging to the flat above Carla Thompson's, the flat of a retired and disabled nurse named Agnes Irume, whose window he had just thrown a brick through. She was also battered senseless in her home, much in the same vein I've described here, then stripped naked and carried out into the car park where Carla lay. The man then roped Agnes by the neck to Carla, jumped and stamped upon them, kicked and punched them further, and then striking the two now unconscious women with a stick he'd found, he began smashing up parked cars nearby with it, specifically Carla's Peugeot 205. By now, telephone calls were flooding into local police stations from alarmed neighbours and passers-by, and a rapid response riot squad was scrambled and dispatched to the scene. When the man spotted the police arriving, he attacked them, ripping their riot shields away, and bombarded them with pieces of brick and broken furniture. He then wrenched a drain pipe off the wall of a nearby property and swung it around his head at them, forcing them to retreat. He jumped onto a car roof, and beating his chest, like Tarzan it was later described, and howling, then jumped up and down on it, severely denting the roof and bonnet. As police closed in on him again, he threw more missiles at them, and eventually the unit commander gave the order to fire CS gas at him. It was only then that a dozen police officers were able to restrain the violently struggling youth. After a 20-minute encounter, wrestling him to the ground 
cuffing and ankle restraining him and then carrying him to a police van which took him to Brixton Police Station. Carla Thompson was lifted into an air ambulance and rushed to the Royal London Hospital whilst Agnes Arume was taken by ambulance to King's College Hospital. A shocked neighbours and witnesses then surveyed the battlefield where the CS gas was slowly dispersing amidst the wrecked cars, the smashed furniture and debris, and the large pool of blood on the road. One of them told journalists who arrived on the scene moments later. It was just too gory to describe. It was so horrific, it was like a nightmare. She was just being pulled around like a rag doll. It was like he had a doll in his hands. A police officer at the scene also later admitted it had been one of the most horrifying incidents he had ever attended. And I can imagine it was, for it sounds pretty horrific, doesn't it? Once the man, identified as 18-year-old Daniel Joseph, who had formerly lived at the property, had been taken to Brixton Police Station and placed in a cell, he was observed at 9.30am through the wicket of his cell door by Dr Robert Brushwatt, who had been advised not to enter the cell itself, and who noticed no obvious injuries or active bleeding to the man. Reading his notes once he'd been identified, Dr Brushwatt advised that a sign language interpreter should be requested to attend as soon as possible, and gave his opinion that Daniel was fit to be detained, but not to be interviewed, and to be placed subject to 15-minute checks, with his handcuffs removed as soon as was practicable, and with a signer constantly present to explain matters to him. The doctor entered Daniel's cell at 10.25am with an interpreter, and examined Daniel with his consent, finding him requiring only minimal medical treatment due to the handcuffs, but otherwise anxious and excitable, though able to communicate well through the interpreter. The doctor considered him fit to be detained and interviewed with an appropriate adult and a sign language interpreter present, but seeing how agitated, afraid and excitable he was, Senior Officer Detective Chief Inspector Sue Hill decided then not to interview or charge Daniel, but merely to get him into a hospital as soon as possible. Eventually, at about 9pm, she contacted a senior registrar from the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital in Camberwell to attend, and Daniel was then seen by both this doctor and a separate forensic medical examiner, and it was decided that Daniel should be admitted to the Maudsley Hospital for assessment under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act, where he was admitted under police escort and placed in seclusion at 3 o'clock in the morning of the 23rd of January. However, Daniel Joseph proved to be too much of a dangerous problem to manage at this facility, and as soon as could be arranged, which was Monday the 26th of January, he was transferred under police escort to Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire. One account, perhaps a more sensational one, reports that he'd remained so disturbed and violent over that weekend, that upon his transfer to Broadmoor, 27 police officers in three vans were called to escort him there. He was heavily sedated and strapped to a stretcher, and yet still managed to bend his handcuffs out of shape. Agnes Arume, aged 53, the secondary victim in the violence, had suffered a heart attack while she was on the ground and had two broken bones in her face, her jaw and her nose 
where she'd been punched and beaten with a wooden stick. And although she was not initially expected to survive, she made a remarkable recovery after being in intensive care for over a week. By two years after the horrific attack, she clearly still suffered from her injuries and was left with lasting anxiety, though perhaps thankfully, she could remember nothing clearly about the attack. 57-year-old Carla Thompson, meanwhile, the victim who'd been at the eye of the storm of violence, was not so lucky. But she sadly died from her 50-plus injuries, including the beating she'd taken and signs of strangulation, some 21 hours after the attack. So, what on earth triggered such a horrifying and disturbing orgy of violence? Daniel Joseph was born on the 12th of March 1979 at St Thomas's Hospital in London. His mother Claudette already had six children from her previous marriage and had divorced in 1977, it being unclear from records exactly who Daniel's father was. Some accounts state that Daniel's father left the family when he was three years old, but others claim that Daniel's father played no part whatsoever in his life. The relationship between Daniel's father and Claudette is unclear. Two further children, Garth and Marike, were born in Trinidad after Daniel by a different father in 1981 and 1983 respectively. Sometime in the summer of 1980, when Daniel was a year old, Claudette returned to Trinidad, taking Daniel with her. But after a few months, he was sent back to England with a stranger, to him, whilst she remained there for reasons unknown, and thereafter lived with his maternal grandmother. From about September 1981, he attended a school for the partially hearing, Gresham Place, a residential nursery in Surrey, and where he began to make some progress. His grandmother, however, was in poor health at the time with failing eyesight, and found Daniel difficult to cope with. As a small child, he was described as being boisterous and hyperactive, prone to tantrums, which his grandmother's solution to whilst she was caring for him was to shut Daniel in a darkened room and remove all his toys. Possibly because of things like this, in March 1982, when he was just three years old, Daniel was taken into care. Social workers involved with Daniel at the time were certain that part of his hyperactive and boisterous behaviour was due to boredom, lack of stimulation and confusion over all the changes in his life, which is most likely correct. He sounds to have had some upheaval already at such a young age. However, what is equally likely to have had an effect towards this is that Daniel Joseph is also profoundly deaf. He was either born deaf or, as a result of a childhood illness when still a baby, a particularly bad ear infection, was noted to be deaf before he acquired speech. Reportedly, None of his family were ever actively encouraged to learn to use British Sign Language either, though over time the family were able to communicate with Daniel on a fairly basic level using some signs, and he could also lip-read to a certain extent, though having an extremely limited ability to read and write. Daniel remained at Gresham Place until Claudette returned to England in January 1983, and in April of that year, 
took then four-year-old Daniel without permission from the nursery and flew with him to Trinidad, where they were to remain for two years. A report written after his removal from Gresham Place contains the following observations. Daniel would often have outbursts of screaming temper due to the fact he was not always able to be understood or communicate. He often threw shoes off and any heavy toy at the nearest person and pulled out his hearing aid and batteries. His outbursts of temper were soon over, however, and he would always come to be comforted and cuddled. Daniel was capable of showing a great deal of affection. Daniel got on fairly well with other children in the group. On occasions he did tend to be rather spiteful towards other children, biting or hitting to get some toy that he wanted to play with. He loved little ones and liked to help with bathing and getting clean nappies etc. However, there was an incident when he attacked an 18-month-old child when the baby was asleep in its cot, biting and bruising him very badly on his neck and face. The family remained in Trinidad until April 1985 when they returned to London, initially living back with Claudette's mother. With Claudette, Daniel, Garth and Marike all sleeping in one room. One of the main reasons for their return was reportedly that there were no educational facilities for deaf children in Trinidad and Daniel had had little or no schooling whilst he was there, meaning now six years old he had fallen severely behind in his education. On top of having his hearing impairment, indeed, Daniel was assessed as being partially hearing but functioning at the level of a child with severe hearing loss because of lack of stimulation. By the end of October 1985, a council house had been found for the family in the South Lambeth area, and by mid-November, Daniel was taken by the local education authority for an interview at the Penn School in High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire, a residential school for hearing-impaired children with other handicaps as well, and where he started at soon afterwards. Over the years he was a pupil here, it was here that he learned the communication skills that he has, and it was here that he gained great benefit from its structured environment, developing a rapport with certain teachers, particularly a married couple, Dick and Jennifer Friedman, who ran the football team, and expressing a desire to play football, his then obsession. However, an extract from a report from an educational psychologist just two years later reads as follows. Daniel is a boy of average ability who had the potential to overcome his handicap and develop speech and language provided he had consistently used appropriate hearing aids and received skilled help. This has not been possible and now in addition he presents as a very disturbed boy who will require psychiatric intervention. His self-image fluctuates between a strong macho image and that of a small baby or a kitten. He still cannot cope with failure he has to win, he has to be a success. Although he has a fairly clear idea now of right and wrong, he does not seem to be able to stop himself from getting into trouble, and when he is in trouble, he often hides. He still requires help to understand himself and the extent of his emotions. It is important to remember that Daniel has temper tantrums that are calculated because he cannot get his own way, and at times he is still very aggressive to children and staff people admit to being very wary of him. 
Daniel is physically large for his age, and at eight years, this gives concern as every day he grows in strength and stature. In the school holidays, Daniel over the years attended the Charlie Chaplin playgroup play scheme, and indeed, one of the male playgroup workers here befriended Daniel and used to take him and another boy home for weekends. He even had Daniel to stay for a month in 1988 when Daniel's mother returned to Trinidad for a holiday. As time went on though, Daniel appeared unsettled about going there for weekends, and by the end of 1989 had refused completely to go anymore. In January 1990, this playgroup worker was suspended over allegations of interfering with the other boy he'd befriended though the results of these allegations were unable to be determined through researching. However, suspicions were raised that Daniel had also been interfered with in some way, so the school referred the matter to the Lambeth social workers who had responsibility for the family, and at the end of May 1990, disclosure interviews were carried out with Daniel, who was then 11 years old. He subsequently had regular counselling sessions with a sign-in social worker and psychotherapist following these, and although he never referred explicitly to it in any of them, the professionals involved were in little doubt that he had been sexually abused over time, most likely by this man. Poor kid, eh? Despite his setbacks, Daniel was well-liked by several other pupils and teachers assigned to him, Two in particular, a Mrs. Stacy and a Mrs. Forrester, who taught him when he moved to the Rainers side of the school in early 1993 and began to board there. Whilst each of them, when interviewed for an inquiry several years later, spoke of Daniel with glowing terms, saying how he was a likeable, well mannered boy who wanted to be friends with everybody and who desperately did not want to be seen as deaf, who just wanted to be part of a group. Mrs. Stacy was to admit that his mood swings seemed to get worse as he went into adolescence, and that his aggression against other people, it had up to then mainly been confined towards inanimate objects which he would throw or destroy, seemed to start when he went to Rainer's full time, saying, It seemed as if suddenly a situation would spark something off, and he would get himself into a spiral of aggression, first anger against himself, then threatening towards others. He would throw things about and he would put an aggressive stance on, but he didn't actually thump out at people, he would push people out of the way, that was very often his way. Because he got bigger, that could be equally dangerous. She also added the telling remark, I think he never really caught up in maturity with his age, even though in size he outgrew it. Now there are reports from here of Daniel often climbing things as though he wanted to escape from something, locking himself away and refusing to discuss reasons why, and he would often ask for paper, only to draw images mainly indicating his own death, or him at locations such as a hospital, or even prison. Resulting in, on the 17th of January 1994, Daniel being seen at Springfield Hospital by Dr Peter Hindley, a consultant in child and adolescent psychiatry at the National Deaf Services, and Valerie Leach, a National Deaf Service social worker who is a self-deaf and so who could communicate with Daniel. 
Here, Daniel told Dr. Henley that communication at home was a problem for him, and he felt very frustrated, although it became clear that he had a high regard for his mother. He talked at length about football to them, and how he believed strongly in keeping fit, it being noted that he seemed proud of his large physique. By that age, he was already over six feet tall and powerfully built, and even a touch of aggression was detected as he described it. It was to do with football that the first incident of that year concerning Daniel occurred. On the 8th of February 1994, there was an incident at the school during a football match where Daniel got upset about a particular boy playing on the opposing team and initially walked off the field. He began to throw large stones around, though none in the direction of the children playing football who still ignored him. Then Deputy Head of Rainers, Jeanette Ford, went out to try to talk to Daniel, but as she approached him, he picked up a wooden chair and held it above his head before flinging it to the ground and breaking it. He then did the same with a large wooden garden bench, before picking up a brick and throwing it to the ground, then climbing over a fence. He then began throwing stones at the wall of a shed which contained sheep, and when Mrs Ford signed to him not to throw things at the shed because the sheep would be frightened, Daniel stopped and walked away across the field. Other teachers reported that Daniel had then knocked over two portaloos, broken the pipes on others, and was attempting to lift and push over one of the teacher's camper vans. He then climbed a tall tree in the grounds where he remained for the next four hours, before he eventually came down and was found in his bedroom at about 7pm, then going to have his supper. School headmaster Stephen Jones went to speak with him in the dining room and had asked him why he was so upset as Daniel appeared visibly agitated. When Mr Jones asked him if he wanted to go home, he banged his head on the table, then raised a heavy milk jug with both hands, but allowed Mr Jones to remove it from him. Mr Jones then told him that he wanted to talk about the problems earlier in the day, and at this, Daniel jumped up, pushing his chair backwards, and stood facing the headmaster in a karate stance. Mr Jones told him he was not staying to argue with him, and he was returning to his office. Daniel apparently made a lot of noise as Mr Jones left the dining room, then followed him down the corridor. When Mr Jones turned to ask him if he wanted to talk, Daniel then took a fire extinguisher from the wall, and held it above his head as if to throw it towards the headmaster then took out the pin and sprayed Mr Jones several times with it. He then approached him using karate-type kicks and chops, still holding the fire extinguisher in one hand. Mr Jones decided that the situation was now beyond his control, and so called the police. Two police officers arrived shortly afterwards, and when Daniel, who was watching from an upstairs window, saw the car arrive, he went down to the corridor by the general office and assumed the position, i.e. he lay on the floor, face down, with his hands on his head, and put his arms out as if ready to be handcuffed when the officers came into the school. Now he was not arrested as a result of this act, and was allowed to go home the following day, after he had expressed his wish to. There were several other incidents in succession, perhaps not as severe as this, but all which built up. For example, one morning Daniel pushed or punched at least five other children whilst getting ready for school. Another time placed two eggs into his pocket and made a scene when he refused to give them back, 
and another time, on a narrow boat trip to Coventry, Daniel jumped off the boat in an argument over a newspaper that he admitted later himself had gotten out of hand totally. But on the 23rd of June 1994, there was yet another incident. Once again, Daniel was playing football, this time at Hazelmere Youth Centre, and a mistimed aim at the ball by another boy meant that Daniel had been kicked on the ankle. Despite his opponent apologising to him, Daniel became severely agitated, and after the final whistle a few minutes later, he stormed off, got on the school bus and caused damage to the indicator and windscreen wiper stalks, pulled up the handbrake so that it jammed, then left the bus and refused to get back on it, so that it left for the school without him. Later that evening, back at the school, Daniel had not been seen and was reported missing and the police were once again called, though it soon transpired that Daniel had in fact returned to the school by himself unnoticed and was in his room asleep. After the police left, Daniel went and stripped the bed of the boy who had accidentally kicked him and destroyed various objects in the boy's room. Now, once again, Daniel calmed down quickly, but was still sent home and as his mother was on holiday in Trinidad once again on a month's holiday. Daniel's mother made fairly regular trips to the West Indies, and it was noted by more than one professional that Daniel's behaviour often deteriorated when she was away. He was left in the care of his now fully blind grandmother. Following this latest incident, the decision was made to permanently exclude Daniel from Rainers, it being just one incident too many and the National Deaf Services team and Lambeth Social Services were informed of this decision. Shortly after Daniel's exclusion from school, a 13-year-old girl with cerebral palsy at the school made allegations that Daniel had raped her four times, leading to him being interviewed by the police on the 9th of August. Now, the girl's evidence was apparently confused and inconsistent, however, the alleged incidents were said to have taken place during the time when Daniel was in fact at home, having been suspended from school, and none of the staff at the school could believe that Daniel was involved in such behaviour, though his mother was just over a week later to confide in social worker Jenny Park that one of Daniel's half-sisters had previously said that he had sexually abused her before she was received into care, though she had subsequently withdrawn this accusation. No charges were ever brought against Daniel for these accusations. However, it was decided that Daniel should be offered a counselling programme dealing with social skills, anger management, and, with care, sex education. Counselling sessions which he attended regularly and made some, though minimal, progress at. In the meantime, now excluded from Penn School, Daniel was barely communicating with anybody within or outside of his family and so his world became very restricted, his inner world being the only world that he had, and he became focused on himself and developing his physical strength, which had stemmed from Daniel's new obsession, American wrestling, which he watched endlessly on television. Now, at the time Daniel began watching what was then known as WWF wrestling, it's known as WWE today, so pandas are allowed to hit each other with chairs. It had all of the colourful and legendary Hall of Famers actively working at the time, names that will be familiar to the majority of listeners, such as Hulk Hogan, Bret the Hitman Hart, Macho Man Randy Savage, and my favourite when I was a youngster, 
The Undertaker, and which foreshadowed what became known as probably the most popular era of wrestling, the Attitude Era of it, where the world met the likes of The Rock, Triple H, and my all-time favourite, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that's the bottom line, because the true crime enthusiast says so. And which brought with it wild and wonderful match types such as first blood matches, tables, ladders and chairs, and hell in a cell. Now this latter match type I've mentioned, Hell in a Cell, provided one of the most famous pieces of wrestling footage in history, when, with barely two minutes into the match, The Undertaker throwing Mick Foley the 15 feet from the top of the cell, a cage-like structure that surrounds the ring, to crash through the announce table below at the 1998 King of the Ring pay-per-view event. It's quite an iconic match, that is, and for however much wrestling is scripted and choreographed, When you see it, you think, and it is on YouTube to view, you think, bloody hell, that's got to have hurt that. I believe there's also a moment during it where Foley is also slammed onto drawing pins too, as well as being chokeslammed through the top of the cell into the ring below. It's an event that was largely associated with The Undertaker during his career, and he appeared in the inaugural match of these in a bout against the wrestler who soon became Daniel's favourite, his hero the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. He worshipped him and was forever emulating his hero, particularly copying Michaels' finishing manoeuvre, a super kick to the face that went by the name of Sweet Chin Music. But you can't just sit watching wrestling all day. And now aged 16, Daniel was not receiving any education. So, after a number of potential places fell through due to them being full, or them not having the capabilities to support a student of Daniel's level of ability, in September 1995, he began a special pre-vocational course for deaf students at Southwark College. For the next year, he attended the college, where he seems to have done quite well, establishing a good rapport with his tutor, and the college willing for him to continue for a second year. Though it was reported that he was quite good at home at this time, he tended to spend hours locked in his bedroom on his own, sleeping through the day and waking at night, and of course, still watching his wrestling. Two events happened that following year that affected Daniel. Firstly, in May 1996, Daniel had been out with his brother Garth when some white youths in a car had mounted the pavement and tried to run Garth over. Whether this was mere negligence, spite, or a racially motivated action, as Daniel and Garth are of Afro-Caribbean heritage, is unclear. Daniel had been very upset by this event, and by the end of June, was still very anxious and quite paranoid about people outside, staying in a lot, shutting himself in his room, and going to college very little. It led to an increase in arguments within his family over the most trivial things, to which Daniel would react violently resulting in police being called to the house several times. Then, on the 1st of November, Dick Freeman, the teacher at Penn School of whom Daniel had been particularly fond, indeed, had regarded as almost a father figure, died suddenly. Daniel was badly affected by his death, and though he attended his funeral, was solemn whilst there and didn't speak at all. He was later to say to a social worker, that he had cried for nine hours solid following Mr. Freeman's death. 
By this time, Daniel's obsession with the World Wrestling Federation had gotten to the point where he'd become convinced that he should go to the USA and ask his hero, Shawn Michaels, to teach him how to wrestle. Now, Daniel's mother by this time was in a relationship with a man named Matthew Gillett, who is described as his stepfather, though there are no reports of Claudette having married again. And on the 27th of November, perhaps in an attempt to reach Daniel, to bond with him somewhat, Matthew had taken him to a WWF event at the London Arena. Daniel had been preparing for this over the previous four nights, getting himself worked up, and early that morning had gathered all of his possessions and clothing into suitcases, grabbed his out-of-date passport, and had set off for the arena, believing this would be an opportunity for WWF staff to take him to America with them after the show a belief which no one at home appears to have tried to dissuade him from. At the end of the event, Daniel attempted to approach a referee in order to gain introduction to one of the wrestlers with whom he wanted to discuss the possibility of his going to America with them, and when Matthew tried to prevent him from doing so, there was an altercation between them which resulted in Matthew leaving Daniel at the arena and going home. Matthew Gillett told an inquiry years later, He believed he was going to join them and he was going to be the boy wrestler, partner to Shawn Michaels. He had it all planned. It is laughable, but it was terribly serious. That was his first breakdown on that night when he realised, because he thought I was like an angel and could persuade anybody. He took all his bags in the car. I did not say he could do it. I just said no, but I couldn't talk to him. But that was his plan. He believes that he can live in the hearing world and that he doesn't need to live with the deaf people. That is another of his beliefs and it's quite a strong belief, stronger than people think. Matthew Gillett claimed that he left Daniel at the London Arena because I thought he would find out for himself that he could not go and it was not just me telling him he cannot go. He would find out when they just left him. Which seems a proper cruel thing to have done to me I I think that's shameful Daniel was returned home at about midnight by one of the security guards from the London arena and when he arrived home he became extremely angry with his mother Matthew and his brother Garth accusing them of preventing him from going to America it's not clear whether or not he physically attacked them there are no reports of any of them being injured in any way but Matthew described the incident that led to Claudette calling the police and Daniel being arrested, and ending up being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, saying, He picked up this curbstone, a big curbstone. He threw it, I don't know, I thought he threw it at me, but it went through the window. We were out in front of the house, welcoming him home sort of thing, but he was really ratted that he'd had to come home. He didn't want to come home. That's when he blamed me, and then his mother argued, somebody else argued with him, and the security guy was wonderful really, because he actually held Daniel back in his temper. It had accumulated, you see, from us saying no on numerous occasions about going to America, and then finding that he could not go. That brought his temper out the most. Although Matthew Gillett described Daniel as having an underlying anger, the incident with the curbstone came as a shock to him, for he'd not seen such aggression in Daniel before. 
Following Daniel's arrest, after an examining doctor had suggested he was showing the first signs of mania and delusion with his fixed belief that he could go to train with the WWF, he'd interpreted a simple travel club document that the WWF had sent to him in response to a letter he'd sent asking for training as an invitation to go and work and train with them. Daniel agreed to be referred for inpatient assessment and treatment at the Southwestern Hospital where he remained on Nelson Ward until being transferred to the Lloyd Still Ward at St. Thomas's Hospital on the 3rd of December, St. Thomas's being in his local catchment area. Although very angry at his family when he was first admitted, the nursing notes throughout his stay at Southwestern Hospital show him to have been calm, pleasant and no management problem. However, on the 5th of December, fairly late that evening, Daniel was visited by his older sister Marion, during which there was a disagreement between Daniel and his sister after he expressed hatred at his family, blaming them for preventing him from going to America as he felt they were all against him and they started fighting each other, having to be separated by the ward staff and resulting in security being called. Three weeks later, on the 27th of December, still as an informal patient, Daniel was transferred to Old Church the National Deaf Service's inpatient facility in Balham, where he was to remain until the middle of August 1997. WWF wrestling was virtually all he talked of. He still held this belief that he would go to America to become a famous wrestler and always to be strong. And though he signed in fluent rapid BSL, his sentences grammatical and complete, his prolonged utterances didn't follow a logical sequence and there was little attention to context making the content difficult to follow in detail. For example, he would sign things like, The old man had a bad heart, do you know Bret Hart? He's very famous. Makes no sense to the listener, but it would to him. Now, Daniel was in fact considered well enough to leave hospital by mid-March, but his housing and future education had not yet been sorted out, and therefore he had to remain an inpatient. His mother couldn't cope with him at home due to his disruptiveness, plus she only had a two-bedroom flat and other children living there, and his extreme naivety and inability to communicate ruled out independent living for him. So on the 14th of August 1997, he was placed on a temporary basis at Ian Colley House in Tooting, a hostel run by Hardin Housing Association and the Pathfinder National Deaf Service which runs a residential care service for deaf people with mental health problems. All of its staff used BSL, and it had a policy of 50-50 deaf to hearing staff. He was also placed under a care plan of him continuing with his prescribed medication of risperidone and procyclidine, seeing a community psychiatric nurse on a two-weekly basis, and being under the overall care of Dr Nick Kitson at the time the only consultant psychiatrist on the NDS's adult team, and who recalled later of his first and lasting impression of Daniel. I smile because he was a very personable person, even when ill, playful, amusing, extremely large, but in that sense not threatening. The whole flavour of him was not, you know, help. I've seen a few like that in my time, but he certainly was not. I must admit I probably thought that the first time I saw him sitting in the waiting area before I'd achieved any response from him. But as soon as you get any response, he was a warm, nice person who was good to have around, would be fun to have around. I didn't feel threatened by him and was a little surprised that he was such a warm character given his background. I would judge him at that time and indeed 
would have judged him throughout until the final event as somebody who in our speciality was not a major risk. Hold that thought, for just over five months later, Daniel was to commit the crime I opened the episode with. Now, Daniel slowly adapted to the routine at the hostel, to the point where he began spending weekends back at his mother's, though he still displayed signs of bizarre behaviour here, such as refusing meals and then attempting to eat frozen foods he'd tried to defrost and cook by using the kitchen hot tap. He had his first CPN review, all fine, but for his second, scheduled for the 18th of September, he'd asked for this to be rearranged so that he could go to Birmingham for a planned trip with his mother and Matthew Gillett to the National Exhibition Centre to a WWF show there, where Shawn Michaels was appearing. It had, and so they'd gone to this, and they joined the crowd waiting to see Shawn Michaels, as Daniel wanted to get his autograph. However, Shawn Michaels only appeared for a few minutes and didn't even notice Daniel, and apparently, as Shawn Michaels drove off in his car, Daniel chased after the car and disappeared from sight, going missing for an hour and eventually turning back up at the hotel they were staying at. The next day, Daniel apparently bought all the Shawn Michaels gear, his jersey, his leather hat and earrings, and dressed up just like his hero. The event didn't start until 8pm, yet by 1.30, Daniel was waiting at the arena, making friends with all the security guards, apparently buying them drinks, because he wanted to be at the front, convinced that he would get to see Shawn Michaels personally at the end of the show. However, Shawn Michaels didn't take any notice of him, despite him being dressed as him, so Daniel asked the security guards to put him in the front line, but still, he didn't get Michael's attention. This really upset Daniel, who was very moody for the rest of the night, but the next day, he woke up and signed to his mother, Future, which she interpreted as meaning that he would wait until the future, when he was older, for his dream to be realised. He was also now starting to spend more and more time back at his mother's, and, and despite them encouraging him to stay at Ian Colley House, where he was getting his medication administered, and some sort of routine, complete with support, the best sounding place for him really, didn't you agree? There were two fundamental flaws. The first was that the mental illness which required all this care, also encouraged Daniel to reject it. After less than a month, he was missing appointments and practically living with his mother again. And the second was that nobody could seemingly agree which authority was responsible for him. Pathfinder Services said he belonged to Lambeth Healthcare, in whose patch he'd been living with his mother, whilst Lambeth Healthcare said he belonged to Pathfinder because he was deaf and because the Ian Colley hostel was in their area. In the background, Lambeth Social Services also had a duty of care for him, but believed the primary responsibility lay with Pathfinder or Lambeth Healthcare. Sounds a right bloody mess indeed, doesn't it? Adding to this then, is when Carla Thompson now came into the picture, and where it's worth looking at her. There isn't much available about her for researching, though it is reported she was a divorced mother of two, a former drug and alcohol user who had herself a history of mental illness caused by a nervous breakdown whilst working as a copywriter in the mid-1980s. She'd stayed in a psychiatric hospital following this, from which she'd emerged with an eccentric faith in the powers of God and a belief that the power of prayer would always supersede 
the power of medication. She was left to fend on her own upon release, with no reported support or supervision whatsoever, and became known locally as a good Samaritan, if a slightly eccentric one, who helped down and out and kept her door open to needy people, turning a Tulse Hill council flat in Manaway into an improvised church where alcohol and marijuana were freely available. She gathered about her stray dogs and stray people, sometimes as many as up to six staying in the largely squalid one-bedroom flat while she looked for permanent accommodation for them, and where she read to them from the scriptures, played the guitar to them, and even used the bathroom to baptise several people, convincing them that it was not for doctors to cure the sick, but faith in the powers of the Lord through prayer meetings and the like. Agnes Arume her upstairs neighbour, sometimes came down and joined in with the prayer meetings also. It was to Carla's flat where, against advice, that Daniel left Ian Collie House for good on the 22nd of November 1997 and went to live, which meant that he was now on the patch of yet another health authority, Bethlehem and Maudsley, and by all accounts with the knowledge and blessing of his family. Indeed, he gave his forwarding address from Ian Collie House as Carla Thompson's flat in Manor Way, as well as a further address for Matthew Gillett at a Streatham Gospel Church. Now it isn't known exactly how Daniel and Carla Thompson came to be known to each other, though in a conversation with his social worker three days after he'd moved there, predominantly with her inquiring about having Daniel's benefits sorted and to recognise the contribution he would have to make towards the cost of living with her, Carla had told her that she'd known the family for almost a year, possibly through the church. She had also verbally agreed to bring Daniel to any appointments and to supervise his medication, though concerns were noted that this was a person unknown to Daniel's social worker who had no ability to sign. She made simple hand gestures like we would when we all talk with our hands and therefore was unable to convey information to him. Concerned at this, for he had a habit of not taking medication, missing appointments, and was hard to keep track of due to his ever-changing addresses causing confusion over which authority he fell under. Over the next few weeks, attempts were made to see Daniel, and on the 9th of December, his community psychiatric nurse attempted a home visit to Carla Thompson's flat. She later described in a letter to the health authority, Daniel and his friend Carla were not at home at the time of the visit and the other occupants seemed unaware of their whereabouts. The general condition of the property was poor. There were several broken panes of glass in various doors and windows. The house smelt squalid. There were a number of biblical scriptures that had been written on A4 paper and stuck to the walls, as well as scriptures scribbled on the kitchen cabinet. The living room contained a sofa, a sofa bed, a mattress on the floor, and a small divan. These all contained some form of bedding, and two of them were occupied at the time of my visit. When a home visit was successful, aside from noting how dark and squalid the flat was, how distracting it was to try and assess Daniel with four other people in the room, each of whom were either completely out of it, or showing clear signs of needing mental health help themselves, alongside two dogs running around, it was noted that when Daniel awoke, he'd actually been asleep on one of the beds for the first 20 minutes of the visit, the only thing he expressed, apart from talking about WWF, 
was that he very definitely didn't want any further help from mental health services and only wanted social services help to get him a bigger flat than where he was currently staying. Now, since he'd moved in with Carla, Daniel had completely ceased his medication too, deteriorating his mental state. And when his social worker again visited the property on the 9th of January 1998, she expressed in her later follow-up notes the concern is unkempt state, his drastic weight loss, and her certainty that he was mentally debilitating, citing his rapid incoherent signing and his complete lack of eye contact, interest, and engagement with things that he once would have. She was also concerned that this environment and the person now responsible for his day-to-day care, Carla Thompson, were unsuitable for Daniel to be around, a notion which was seconded by a doctor who had also attended the flat for a home visit, though who said though Daniel was debilitating mentally, he was not sectionable. However, as I said, because he'd moved addresses so much, and all these were not separated a great deal in distance, only by some two miles in total, They each fell under three different mental health authorities, causing confusion over whose responsibility it was to really deal with Daniel. And meanwhile, the incidents kept happening. He grabbed Matthew Gillett in a headlock one evening and began punching him, a la Shawn Michaels, and then later stole his car keys and attempted to drive his car off, merely hitting a tree when Matthew had refused to take him to some local wrestling event. He had by this time also begun a relationship of sorts with another girl staying at Carla's, known only as Kirsty, and though it's reported that she was already in a relationship with another older man at the time, and concern was expressed that she was exploiting Daniel for his benefit money, Daniel was very protective to her. When he saw another man at the flat merely talking to her, Daniel picked him up and threw him bodily across the room. He also developed a particular hatred for an Indian man named Suleiman who was staying at the flat, a drug user, and told more than one person that he would either kill him or kill himself. By now, Claudette Joseph was trying desperately to convince whoever would listen that Daniel was severely mentally deteriorating and that he required hospitalisation. However, I may have portrayed the family as largely unsympathetic towards Daniel. It has to be said that all reports here concur that she was extremely concerned for her son. And when Daniel realised this was what she was trying to do, on Tuesday the 20th of January, he fled to yet a different flat, this time one in Streatham, with Kirsty, apparently helped to by Carla, who by now had expressed in him, got him to believe fully, the power of prayer against the power of medication. Kirsty's later statement included that on the Wednesday night, however, she had left this flat following an argument and returned to Carla's flat, so concerned was she about Daniel's behaviour. She said that he was banging his head against the wall and told her that feelings in his head exploded and that he heard voices in his head, particularly Solomon's voice, whom he wanted to beat up. Kirsty said that Daniel was hyper and described how he put a hammer a piece of wood and a knife on the mattress in the sitting room, indicating that it was for protection because he knew that drunks and junkies had been known to break into the flat when it was empty. He then started doing kung fu kicks in the air and kicking the wall, also hitting the wall with a stick until 2 o'clock in the morning. The following morning, Wednesday, Kirsty and Daniel had rowed and he told her to pack her bags and to get out. 
Kirsty's statement continues. I was upset and I went back to Carla's and told her what had happened. It was later that day, at about 9pm, when Daniel came to the flat and took his television and video recorder. It was then that Carla said to me that she was going to tell Daniel that I was pregnant by him. Carla said I should wait for the right time to tell him, but on that Tuesday, she was annoyed with him and wrote a note on a piece of paper saying, Kirsty is going to have your baby, or something like that. She gave him the piece of paper, and he looked at it and threw it on the floor before going off with his television and video. As to the validity of Kirsty being pregnant by Daniel, this is unclear. It's a point not clarified in any of the accounts I've used for researching. Though reportedly, as well as informing the barely literate Daniel via a note, Carla had telephoned his mother and told her this also. Now, as far as is known, Daniel spent that Wednesday night on his own in the flat in Streatham, a rarity for no one could recall another time that Daniel had ever been solely on his own throughout a night, and indeed had a ritual he would have to go through at night, locking all the doors in a routine as he was afraid he wouldn't be able to hear if anyone broke in. One can only speculate as to the exact effect being alone that night might have had on the clearly deeply disturbed Daniel, combined with his mental state, his lack of medication, and him wondering why he'd been put out of Carla's flat. But what can be said is that it was, for him, that final straw. The thin membrane shouldering his psychosis, keeping it at bay, was now well and truly broken. Neighbours at the Streatham flat where Daniel was hiding recalled later hearing the sounds of him grunting and jumping around, slowly smashing up the place well into the small hours of the Thursday, when later that morning, Daniel set out on foot to Carla's house and shortly before 8am, kicked in her door and unleashed the horror I've described to begin the tale with. It isn't stated as such in any accounts, but you have to think that for someone as obsessed with wrestling as Daniel was, it being arguably his world, then the six foot seven inch tall, powerfully built youth will also undoubtedly have reenacted what he had seen during the attack, demonstrating such moves against Carla and Agnes. It's quite unimaginable, isn't it? After his arrest, Daniel Joseph remained in such a state of high aggression that it was to be two weeks later, and that for the first time ever in its history, Broadmoor Hospital, the secure unit where he'd been taken, was forced to hold a magistrate's hearing within its walls. Daniel Joseph was simply too violent to risk a trip outside. Following a police interview, on Tuesday the 3rd of February 1998, in the waiting room of Broadmoor's Bedford House Medical Centre, wearing a green and blue sweater, black jogging bottoms and purple ward slippers, and with six nurses surrounding him. Daniel Joseph was charged with murder at a specially convened sitting of Camberwell Magistrates Court, where Camberwell Green Magistrate Brian Loosley remanded him into custody to HMP Belmarsh, but transferred to Broadmoor, merely an administrative procedure this. Under sections 48 and 49 of the Mental Health Act 1983, on the basis of mental illness. Daniel Joseph appeared before the Old Bailey on Monday the 13th of July 1998, charged with the murder of Carla Thompson, though a charge of attempting to murder Agnes Arume was left on file. 
Joseph, who had the brief proceedings conveyed to him in sign language, denied murder, but the Crown accepted his plea of manslaughter on the basis that he was suffering from an abnormality of mind at the time. Mr David Perry Casey, prosecuting, told the court that Mrs Thompson was a devout Christian who opened her home to people with drink, drug and psychiatric problems, but she also believed that faith and the power of prayer could cure mental illness, said Mr Perry. Mrs Thompson believed that through the power of prayer, healing could be affected over conventional medicines. The evidence suggests that she may have been responsible for persuading the defendant from taking medicine prescribed for him. Highlighting and underlining this, Broadmoor psychiatrist Dr Andrew Payne said that Joseph was suffering from paranoid psychosis, but had responded well after being put back onto medication. We believe that his mental illness will continue to improve, he told the court. Presiding Mr Justice Neil Dennison then made Daniel Joseph the subject of a restriction order under sections 37 and 41 of the Mental Health Act 1983 and ordered him to continue receiving treatment at Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital with indefinite detention of no time limit. He was to remain here under a working diagnosis of bipolar affective disorder, though in addition to that diagnosis, it was noted that Daniel had profound communication problems whilst there which considerably complicated his management, as he was the only deaf person out of 450 patients detained at Broadmoor throughout the two years that he spent there, until he was transferred to Rampton at the beginning of 2000, which had a level 1 signer who was also a forensic clinical psychologist, as well as a range of staff and patients who were able to communicate in sign language and where it was hoped a thorough psychological assessment would now be able to be carried out, and therefore be possible to clarify the exact nature of Daniel's difficulties in order to help him in the process of rehabilitation. After the case, his mother Claudette said that she'd begged Pathfinder Services to take back her son after she'd realised what Mrs Thompson was doing, she said. I think they're to blame. Mrs Thompson was a family friend, and I think she meant well, but you got under a spell. He is very, very sorry for what happened, and I'm sorry, it's so sad. He loved Carla, who's just a very, very sick boy. Carla helped Daniel in all his needs, but she stopped him taking his medication because she thought it would zombify his body. Marjorie Wallace, meanwhile, of the mental health charity SANE, said, Daniel Joseph was discharged under a section of the Mental Health Act, placed in a hostel in the community, but allowed to discharge himself to live with another former psychiatric patient who encouraged him to avoid doctors and stop medication. All this happened with the full knowledge of many of the professionals involved in his care, and despite the pleas of his distraught mother, Mrs Claudette Joseph, who believed her son needed hospital care. Not only does this show the absurdity of a system which cannot keep track of one patient, but the huge waste of money and resources with what appears to have been a predictable, tragic outcome. Lambeth Healthcare, also severely lambasted for their handling of the case, announced that they would be setting up an inquiry under the direction of a team led by King's Counsel Barrister Jane Mission. Now this inquiry report was published in September 2000 and is available for reading. A link to it can be found in the episode show notes.
It goes massively into depth concerning the entire account I've brought you here. And though the inquiry found Mrs. Thompson's killing could not have been reliably predicted, it says, The system must be improved or the care in the community programme will continue to create apprehension, if not fear, amongst the general public and we will continue to fail those dedicated professionals who strive to do their best to help those people with mental health problems live as normal a life as they can. It is really worth reading the inquiry findings for yourself because they're so in-depth I could be here all night describing them, but it was to list some 32 recommendations to the current organisations now responsible for the services that were involved in the care of Daniel Joseph. But to summarise, the inquiry found that the lack of a coordinated aftercare plan and poor communication between three health authorities and a specialist psychiatric service for deaf people had contributed to the murder. The report goes on to say that there was no clear understanding or agreement between the agencies involved when reports of Joseph's deteriorating state first emerged a week before the killing. His mother was concerned about his behaviour the week before the tragedy and repeatedly contacted the National Deaf Service for help. The National Deaf Service does not normally provide emergency interventions, however, and relies for these on local psychiatric services. But in this instance, responsibility for Daniel's care in the community had not been negotiated with local services and so remained with the service. To complicate matters further, as we've said, he had three different addresses the hostel, Mrs. Thompson's address, and his mother's address, and although each were within a radius of two miles, they were all in different catchment areas and consequently fell under the responsibility of different teams. A joint statement by the health authorities and the trust responsible for the NDS said, following the report's publication, We accept the panel's findings that Daniel's care after he moved to Carla Thompson's flat was deficient and that a joint agency aftercare plan with clear identification of roles and responsibilities was lacking. With the benefit of hindsight, we can all see that intervention might have prevented the death of Carla Thompson and the severe injuries to Agnes Arume. But hindsight is not the same as prediction. As I say, head to the link to the report in the episode show notes and have a read of it for yourselves. It makes for very interesting, if somewhat sad reading, I thought. It's a difficult subject to talk about mental illness. I find it unreal and saddening that in some circles, it is still taboo to talk about. But one would hope that in the 25 years since the events I've described, support services and networks, specifically the communication between them, have come on in leaps and bounds since the very clear failings in Daniel's case. As, I said, as I've said a few times in the episode, a link to the findings of the later inquiry is attached. It was a massive help in writing the episode, and I barely scratched the surface of it. It's well worth a read to see the findings and recommendations raised within it. It would seem like there were failings in Carla's case also, because from what we know of her, this was another person who it clearly sounded like was having problems who had a documented history of mental illness, yet no support is mentioned as featuring for her either whatsoever, or else she surely wouldn't have gotten to the stage where she was living in what basically sounds like a squat, and be allowed to take in all sorts. Yet, I don't believe it fair to totally batter the services at the time with an imaginary stick, for he missed several appointments that were made for him, 
and sometimes would not engage whatsoever with those out to help him. Plus throughout the report, there seemed to be a multitude of people who actually did develop a rapport with Daniel, who liked him and who genuinely wanted to help him. A couple of his teachers even went to see him six or seven years after he'd left school when he was in Broadmoor. Such were they taken with him. And yet, due to this clear lack of communication and confusion over what authority ward had responsibility or misplaced professional courtesy, it would seem that both he and Carla slipped through the cracks, he not for the want of trying by several. I found this a terribly, terribly sad tale, and as with other tales in a similar vein I've covered on the show previously, I found it impossible to totally condemn with a passion the actions of Daniel Joseph. Don't get me wrong, I don't condone such a crime, because it is truly heinous and awful sounding, of course. But as much as I have sympathy for Carla Thompson and Agnes Arume, who must have carried at least some reminder or memory of that terrible morning constantly with her until her death in 2015, I have great sympathy for Daniel as well. This is someone who had a difficult sounding childhood, who's been through some heartache and appalling things, faced with adversity, and clearly someone desperately struggling with not only a worsening mental illness, and that can happen to you, I, or any of us at any time, but also trying to cope with it on top of deafness as well. Though the warning signs were clearly there, like, from the actions of him we've heard described, this is a young man who should have certainly been in a hospital environment, yet through a combination of a family that didn't seem too invested, and confusions over his changing addresses creating a murkiness about whose authority responsibility he fell under, Daniel Joseph is sadly someone who slipped through the cracks until his actions one morning resulted in someone losing their life, another very nearly, and ultimately, the loss of his own liberty for many years, perhaps for good. One would hope that the psychiatric help and support he so clearly needed, he has now got over the years, and has made, or is making progress with, because, due to the passage of time, has hospitalisation been successful for him, then there is every chance he is today approaching release, or perhaps has even been released now, and still with many years ahead of him to become a productive citizen. Hopefully, with that support that was lacking so many years ago, now firmly in place. That would surely be the best possible outcome all around, wouldn't it? What do you think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale I've brought you in the episode A Boy Called Daniel, which you can do so in the episode thread that is now up in the, in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links should you wish to. Hey, even catch me in a beer garden somewhere to chat about it if you want. I would like to say as well that if, if this is a tale that's struck home to anybody, if it's something that's close to your heart as it is with mine, or you feel it's something you need to talk about, there is always someone who is about to listen. Equally, if there's someone that you know that may be struggling somewhat, I implore you to pass on the same advice to them, or even take that five minutes and offer to talk with them. Even just doing that can make such a difference to someone. It really can. Now, the summer schedule brings with it a multitude of extra things for me to do, or is always a busy time. But whilst the releases may vary on specific days that they're out, they will still be coming without fail. You may even get some bite-sized extra bonus tales also, because I just love the work, I really do. 
With that, I shall wrap up and shut up here now then, and it's on to the next one, like the top shagger Ken Barlow himself. I thank you very kindly for joining me in the MOG today, you've been wonderful as always, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.